0: We are in Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 6 this morning. It's always good to have the Bible open in front of you in your, on your cell phone or one of the few Bibles that are in, in the pew rack in front of you or if you brought your own, even though we're going to put it in up on the screen. Today's our last day in the book of Amos. Uh, next week, I plan to start a new series about, it's called Fearless. It's about how to live a life that overcomes fear. And the thing about our society today, ironically, in spite of the fact that we're more affluent, more free, more peaceful than any generation that's ever existed in any country ever, there's more fear, more anxiety, more trouble in our hearts than I think anybody's ever seen. Uh, Teenagers, young adults are dealing with just rampant anxiety. Uh, uh, Older adults are are struggling with all the things they see on the news and how to process that and where is God in all of this. We're going to talk about that command that comes up over and over again in Scripture, fear not. How do we put that into practice? How do we live a fearless life? That's starting next Sunday. Today we're going to close out this book of Amos. And I want to start with uh, a story about a guy you've probably never heard of, although in his own way he was famous. His name was Kim Peek. Kim Peek was actually the inspiration for the character that Dustin Hoffman played in Rain Man. Didn't look anything like Dustin Hoffman, and his particular uh, presentation of autism was nothing like what you see in the movie. Uh, He was profoundly autistic on the autism spectrum. He was I guess on the far end, however you quantify that, he, he really couldn't have any normal relationships. He couldn't look anybody in the eye. Uh, he couldn't dress himself or, or take care of himself in any way. He had to be cared for by his dad through his entire life. Um, but an incredible memory. He was a savant. He, they called him the Mount Everest of memory. This is a guy who literally could read both pages of a book at the same time, one eye looking at one page, the other at the other page, and retain it all. If you showed him a map, he would memorize the map, and then you could ask him, how do I get from here to there? And he'd tell you, turn by turn, how to get there. If you told him the day you were born and the year, he would say, oh, well, that was, that was a Tuesday, and he'd be right. And he had memorized completely, in excruciating detail, hundreds of plays and orchestra productions and other musical productions. And so uh, his dad, he was a, a tremendous lover of the arts, but his dad had to stop taking him to plays and concerts because he knew the work so well that if they got anything wrong, if the trombone player missed a note, if the, if the drummer was offbeat, if an actor skipped not a line, but a word in a line, he would become so agitated, he would sometimes stand up and shout and demand that everything come to a halt, and they go back and fix it. It just drove him nuts for anything to be wrong. And I tell you that story because I'm afraid that a lot of people have this idea that God is that way, that God doesn't really relate to us, but he knows what's right, and he knows how we are, and so he is constantly sniffing out our failures and our faults. And he is eager to jump on us. He's eager to highlight the things we've done wrong. And here we've been in this This story about Amos, and Amos is this guy, this, this farmer and shepherd who suddenly feels this call to leave his home in the southern kingdom of Judah and travel up north to the northern kingdom of Israel where they're, where they're prosperous and they're cosmopolitan and they're proud of their religious heritage and just essentially get in their faces and tell them, you are not what you think you are. You can't fool God. He knows the sin in your hearts. He knows, and therefore, He's not going to protect you when the Assyrians come in 40 years. To destroy your land. And we read this and we've been on this for several weeks, and I'm afraid that some of you might get the impression that God loves judgment, that God loves wrath, that God loves to punish sin. And yet, you have to look at the entire scripture and see. The whole centerpiece of the Bible, the whole centerpiece of the Christian faith, is the gospel. You know what the word gospel means? It means good news. The good news is God is not against you. God is on your side. God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to thrive. God does not want you to be judged. God wants you to be saved. That's the whole reason he sent prophets like Amos. Yes, they were cranky old men. Yes, they were disagreeable people. But you would be too if you carried the message they carried. Their message was, turn back now. And I don't know how many of you need to hear that. Maybe most of you, maybe all of you but definitely some of you. Turn back now before you reap the consequences of the mistakes you're making and the rebellion in your heart. And so if you look closely enough, if, you, if you're able to really pay attention, you can see there is grace, there is love, even in a prophet like Amos. So I want to show you one of those uh, passages that just shows the pleading of God, pleading for the lives of His children in Amos 5, 4-6. through 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. So let's think about what he's saying to us in those three verses. I think there's three messages that we can take from this. And the first one and the most obvious one is seeking God is the only way to experience true life. Seeking God is where you find life. And when I say seeking God, I know some of you are like, well, what does that mean? It starts with this. There are two questions that should dominate the life of any any believer in Jesus, any Christian. And those questions are, what is God really like? And what does he want me to do right now? I understand you've got a lot of things on your plate, a lot of questions you're trying to, trying to figure out the answer to, a lot of problems you're trying to solve. But over it all needs to come those two questions that answer everything else for you. And that is, Lord, I, I just need to know you better. And I want to know how to obey you. I want to know what I'm supposed to be doing so I can be obedient to you. And if you do those things, if you let those two questions be the quest of your life, then you will live a full life. As Hebrews eleven six 6 says, God rewards those who seek Him. And that doesn't mean that you're immediately richer than your neighbors, and it doesn't mean that you suffer fewer losses and, and suffer fewer diseases, because the truth is, those are parts of living in a world that is stained by sin. And becoming a Christian and even becoming a devout Christian doesn't absolve you from or exempt you from the same kinds of pain and suffering that people experience in this world. But it does enable you to overcome those sufferings. It enables you to live with abundance in spite of those things. Jesus in John 6.35 said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And that becomes a lot more meaningful when you realize they didn't eat beef and chicken and, and, and seafood every day like you and I do. They didn't have meat all the time. That was reserved for special times. That was reserved for festivals and feasts and when you know, the, the prodigal son comes home. Their sustenance was bread. Bread was what they ate every single day. So what Jesus is saying is, I want to be your sustenance. I want to be your main meal. I want to be what keeps you alive. I want to be what you keep your body going on. Because let's face it, we in America, we have all kinds of options when it comes to eating. Right before the worship service, in fact, I texted uh, my family, okay, here's some options for lunch. Well, y'all figure it out, and let me know, and, and we'll meet because they go to the early service. And so they're already home. And I'm like, okay, let me know so I can just go straight from church to where we're going to eat. Well, I mean, it could be anything. We could be eating cheese enchiladas. We could be eating. Uh, we could be eating big, massive burgers. We could be. We could be sitting down to a big plate of French fries covered in all kinds of goo. Right? None of that's good for you. You realize? You realize we're killing ourselves. Now, this is not me trying to scold you about your eating habits. This is not about nutrition. But the fact is, they call it junk food for a reason. You can eat it. It tastes good. But it shouldn't be your main thing. Because if it is, you're not going to live a full life. And you're probably going to live a much shorter life. And you're going to reach that point where you say, Oh my goodness, why didn't I eat better? See, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Yes, you will dine on other things. Yes, you will have other interests. And yes, you will have other relationships. And believe it or not, all those become more meaningful when I am your main meal, when I am the bread of life for you. Some of you need to make that change where Jesus is not just a snack you eat on Sundays or something that you dine on on special occasions, but he is the foundation of your existence and everything else falls into place behind that. Or to put it another way, when my kids were really, really little, Carrie and I decided let's buy them some fish. And so we went out, we didn't have much money, so we bought kind of a modest little fish tank, and we bought some, some chemicals you can put in your water that are supposed to make it suitable for fish. And we bought several fish and we brought them home, and, and Kaylee got really into this. She made out a little index card and she, with, with a careful description of each fish and what its name was, and she taped that to the side of the fish tank very helpful, right? It was 24 hours. The first one went belly up. And I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, it's a tough transition from the pet store to home. But the second day we woke up and there was another one. And then from then on, it was just this grim death march or death swim, I guess, because every time I would come home, every day when I'd come home from work, I'd walk by the fish tank and I'd see that little Kaylee had crossed out another name on the list. It was just the worst. And it was even worse to realize when we went back and talked to the pet store people and they're like, "Uh, well, yeah, um, you need to bring your water to us so we can test it and make sure what exactly, you can't just throw anything in there and make it fit for fish. And so the next time we did, you know, it's even worse to find out it was our fault that we killed the fish. And the point is that that fish were made to swim in particular kind of water and you can't get around that. You know, a, a freshwater fish can live in salt water for a little while and then it dies In the same way, you and I were made to walk with Jesus. We were made to walk with God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him, as Augustine said 2,000 years ago. Now, can we survive apart from God for a while? Yeah. We can even fool ourselves into thinking, everything's okay, I'm living it up, I'm living my best life. But eventually, we realize, I was not meant for this. Some of you are at that point right now and you need to come home to him. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't come so that we could just have a bunch of rules that beat us down and and someplace to go on Sunday mornings. He came so that we would live lives that are so full of life that our life will spill out on somebody else and they'll say, wow, that's really great. I want some of what you have. Is that a good description of the way you're living right now? Do you live a life that other people envy, not because you have more money or you're better looking or any of that stuff, but just because you've got life flowing out of you? If not, our mistake that we make is when life isn't working the way we think it should, we, we, we give everything a try except for the one thing that works oh, well, I just need a new job. I just need to quit this lousy job and get another one. Oh, well, I I need to make more money. I need to buy more stuff. I need to lose some weight. I I need to get rid of this person I'm with now and go to this other person who will make me happier. And then we end up right back where we were before because what we need is to seek the Lord. And before I move on to the next point, in case you're sitting there saying, well, that'd be great, but I don't even know what it means to seek the Lord. Believe you me, there is no conversation I would rather have Nor would Michael, nor would Alan, nor would Kathy, nor would Nathan, or Robert, or James, or your life group leader, or any deacon in this church, or probably any other person in this church, than for you to come and sit down and say, I'd really like to know God better. What does it mean to seek him? How do I do that? So please come talk to us. Seek the Lord, and you'll find life. Second thing we need to understand from this is, seeking God means more than just religion. Now, I know it's the party line to say, you need to be in church on Sundays. And believe you me, nothing makes me happier than to stand up here and see your smiling face or even your yawning face, as the case may be, in that pew. It makes me happy. I hope you're here. I hope you get a lot out of it. But there's more to seeking God than religion. I had a professor in in college who was British, or at least we thought he was. He had this great accent I mean, I'm not making this up. If you had to go to the bathroom in his class, he'd be like, okay, here's your hall pass. And the hall pass said, "loo" because that's what British people call the bathroom, apparently. And then we found out the big phony was actually born and raised in Pennsylvania. Now, he went to Oxford. He studied at Oxford. Good for him. But no, he just pretended to be British because he thought it made him more interesting, which he needed because he really wasn't that good a teacher. So <laughs> I, I tell you that story because... The Israelites, they thought the way to get on God's good side was to pretend to be righteous. And they pretended to be righteous by going to worship. He he says, seek me and live, but don't seek Bethel. What does that mean? Bethel was the place where they had built a temple, a temple to the Lord. And he says, and don't go to Gilgal or Beersheba. Those were places where they had built high places, kind of homemade shrines where you could go and worship. And God is saying, I don't want that. I don't want your worship if your heart isn't right with me. See, you can fool me, believe me. If you come on Sundays, you can fool me into thinking you are as righteous as the day is long. I am easy to trick, but you can't fool God. And this isn't God trying to nitpick. This isn't God saying, "Uh, your worship isn't good enough for me. It is God out of love saying, don't go to church thinking that's enough. You need more. You need repentance. The way you live Monday through Saturday Uh, cannot be counteracted by showing up Sunday morning. I had a friend once, sad story, he and his wife eventually divorced, but when they were still together and they were having problems, he came to me and he was like, what do I do? He said, you know, I don't understand. I'm doing everything I can. She's so unhappy with me. You know, you, you don't know how much I love this woman. I mean, I bring her flowers at least once a week. And I said, man, maybe she doesn't want flowers. Maybe she wants something more. Specifically, she wants you to get a job. He didn't like that answer because it's so much easier to just bring home flowers once a week than it is to have a real relationship where you know the person's needs and you meet those needs as best you can. And, And so in our relationship with God, it's so much easier to just say, okay, I've been to church once this month. I checked that box off. I'm good. Rather than say, how does God want me to live? And when I'm singing, because Jesus said in John 4.23, I want worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. So I want you to mean the words that you're singing. I want you to really pay attention when the preacher's preaching. I want you to give out of a heart of love and generosity. And I want that worship to be backed up by a life during the week that is seeking to please me, that is seeking to live out the life that I've called you to live. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means... You're seeking it. Uh, let me just give you two diagnostic questions, okay? These are not from the Bible, but, but they're from me, and I hope I'm biblical in saying this. Number one, do you come to church because you want to please God and know Him better, or because you want Him to bless you? I think a lot of times we try to manipulate God into going where, he want him, where we want Him to go by, okay, I'll show up at church, but then you do this for me. And it doesn't work that way. True worship is, I have no agenda, Lord, other than I want to know you better and I want to do your will. Second question, can you name some areas of your life where you are right now praying and working to become more obedient to Him? Because I'll just tell you, I've got four or five that I'm praying about all the time where I know I'm not there yet. And I think that list is only going to grow. And unless you're way less sinful than me, you ought to have at least one. At least one thing where you're saying, I know right here, Lord, my life does not meet your standards. I know right here, there's, there's rebellion in my heart. There's, there's selfishness. There's pride. So cleanse me and make me more like you. That's true worship. When you come into the house of God, you're not coming into the house of God saying, here I am, the perfect one. You're coming into the house of God saying, Lord, I, I'm seeking you with all my heart. In spirit and in truth and that's the kind of worship God is pleased with that brings me to my last point the really good news is as long as you have breath you can start seeking God see some of you might even testify I don't know who it would be but some of you might stand and say Jeff the truth is I wish I would have heard this years ago because I've been pretending all this time and my heart hasn't been with him and I've wasted all these years and the good news is you're still breathing That means God still has a plan for you. That means God hasn't given up on you. That means He can restore what the locusts have eaten, as Joel said. That means He can make the rest of your life so true and so meaningful that the earlier part becomes a testimony. Testimony. Or you might say, it's not the years, Jeff. It's the things that I've done. You don't know the kinds of things that I've done. And that's true. And I don't need to know. But God knows. And He still wants you to be redeemed. He still wants you to experience His fullness and His love. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. prophet wrote that to Israel, to the the Jews when they were in exile, far from their home, and they were afraid that God had forgotten them. He says, no, God hasn't forgotten you. There's still time. Seek Him while there's still time. Now's the time. It's like Amos came way before Isaiah, but after Amos went back home to Judah, went back to farming and and tending his sheep, they still had 40 years in which the words of Amos rang in their ears, and they still could have turned. They still could have come back to the Lord for three years, their, their city, the city of Samaria, was besieged by the Assyrians. You know what happens when your city's under siege? The food is gone. You ever been hungry for three years straight? If any of those Israelites during that time of desperation cried out to God for help, I guarantee you, He welcomed them home because that's who He is. After Israel was gone and some of the people left in the land migrated back down to the south, to Jerusalem, where Hezekiah was king, and he was reestablishing the Jewish people, uh, reestablishing the covenant between them and the Lord, they had a chance again to seek God. And then 150 years later, when that group, when the the Jews themselves, the people of Judah, they too were carried off into exile, God didn't give up on them either. And that's why they came home 70 years later, came back and reestablished a home. See, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, and some of them are exciting, and some of them are terrifying, and some of them are just, they're just poignant. And I'll give you one right here. Deuteronomy 4.29, book of Deuteronomy, by the way, is the last words of Moses, his last instructions before he died. So there's no nation of Israel yet, and in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is telling them, hey, we know. God knows someday you're going to walk away from him. And as a result, you're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your people. You're going to be carried away to a distant country where you're going to have to serve a foreign army and and be mistreated. But he says, listen to this. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. God's saying, I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to break my heart. I know you're going to disappoint me. But when you turn back to me, I'll be there. No questions asked. So, Max Lucado, very popular Christian author, pastored for years in San Antonio. He wrote a story about when he was a young man going off to college, like any good Church of Christ boy, he wanted to go to Abilene Christian. His parents sent him off there, and on the day that he was moving in, his dad handed him a credit card. Now, this is, of course, a long, long time ago before people whipped out credit cards at every purchase. The dad said, here, son, I don't want you to use this unless it's an emergency, but I want to make sure if there's an emergency that you have it. So the day came during that first semester when Max, young Max decided to go visit a girl that he was sweet on who was at another college in another town. He didn't tell his parents. He skipped school. He drove to this other town. And then on the way back, he got into a wreck. He had to tow his car. And he had to pull out that credit card because he didn't have any money for the tow truck or the repair. So that meant he had to call his dad. Long distance. Google it, millennials, it existed. So he had to call long distance and say, hey, Dad, I used the credit card today. You're going to get the bill. You're going to know anyway, but I just wanted you to know. He decided I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to make up some fancy story about what caused me to be between Abilene and this other city and got got into a wreck. He, He just came fully clean. And his dad said, well, as you can imagine, I'm pretty disappointed at what you did. But on the other hand, I'm glad you had that card. I mean, that's why I gave it to you for just this kind of thing. And he got off the phone and he thought, wow, my dad knew I was going to be a screw-up, and he planned for it. He knew I was going to do something stupid, but he was ready. And that's our God. Max Lucado was a missionary to Brazil before he was ever a pastor in San Antonio, and he told another story in one of his early books that I've never been able to get out of my head. I don't know if there's any truth in it. I just know it's about uh, uh, two young women, two women, uh, a mom and a daughter. The mother's name was Maria. The daughter's name was Christina. And they were living together with no husband, no father, just the two of them in this poor little village in Brazil. There's a lot of love in their home in spite of their poverty, a lot of laughter. But as Christina grows up from a precocious little girl into a beautiful young teenage woman. Maria begins to become very concerned, not just because her daughter is a little too pretty for her own good, but because she can tell that she's very discontented in that dismal little village. with no possibilities, with no excitement, no intellectual stimulation, and just some dumb village boys that pester her and flirt with her. And so one day when Maria comes home, And she finds that Christina's gone and all of her stuff is gone. She knows where she's gone. She's gone to the big city. And her heart sinks. Because she knows what the big city will do to a girl like Christina. And she knows what Christina will have to do to survive in the big city. So no time to waste. She takes all of her money, which isn't much. And she goes to a little store, one of those photo booths and puts in as many quarters as she can and just takes picture after picture of herself. With what little money she has left, she has just enough to buy a round-trip ticket on a bus to the city. And She rides there praying all the way. When she gets there, she doesn't eat, she doesn't drink, she doesn't sleep, she just walks to every bar she can find, every nightclub, every seedy hotel, every flophouse apartment, and every place she goes, She leaves a picture behind, taped to bathroom mirror, thumbtacked to a wall or a bulletin board. And eventually she runs out of pictures and she weeps. She walks back to the bus station. She gets on board and she just prays on her way back, Lord, please save my daughter. Please bring her home. So weeks pass and one day little Christina wakes up next to this terrible man in this terrible place manages to roll out of bed and get out the door before he wakes up. As she's walking down the hall and down the staircase, she's just thinking about how, you know, I'm only about 16 years old, but I feel a lot older after what I've been through these past several weeks. And as she walks into the lobby of that apartment complex. She looks across the lobby and she's, she's trying to make a quick exit, but she sees something on the wall and it looks familiar, but it can't be what she thinks it is. So she gets closer, and as the closer she gets, the more sure it is that, that that's a picture of her mother. She has no idea what it's doing there, or where it's from, or if she's hallucinating. But she's immediately struck by this memory of her mom singing to her when she's a little girl. And then about how her mom used to brush her hair every night. And how they had their little inside jokes about different people in the village. And the little stories they would tell uh, of days gone by. And the things her mom would make her by hand for her birthday, for Christmas. And the dishes she would make on Sundays after church or at special occasions. And as she's thinking about these things, she realizes she's weeping. Her throat is just clenched. Her eyes are burning. As she gets closer and closer to this picture, and she takes it off the wall. And just instinctively, she turns it over, and she sees that there's writing on the back. And it's her mom's handwriting. And it says, it says, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. See, in the midst of all of our sin and all of our stupid choices and our foolish priorities, God won't give up on us. He refuses. Max Lucado is a great writer, but he didn't make up that story. That's a version, I think, of an even better story by an even better storyteller. In Luke 15, we read the parable of the prodigal son. For my money, the best story that's ever been told. And you know that one, about that foolish brother that runs away from home with his inheritance, breaks his father's heart, and then loses it all, and then realizes almost too late, I'm going to go home, but my dad will hate me only to find out his dad is longing for his return. The thing most people miss about that story is that Jesus didn't tell that story to a bunch of lost and desperate people. He didn't tell it to tax collectors, prostitutes, drunks. Those people already knew from him that they were loved. You go back to Luke 15 and start with verse 1, and you'll see the audience for the parable of the prodigal son, were the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious men of Israel, people more moral and and more religious than you and I can ever imagine. And they were critical of Jesus because he associated with dirty people, with sinners. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story about what God's really like. And what the other thing people don't realize is the prodigal son isn't really the main character of that story. The main character is the older brother because that's where Jesus spends most of the time in the tale. The older brother who's always done everything right and who's angry that his father welcomes this this worthless one who wasted your wealth on prostitutes, welcomes him home with celebrating. Because the story ends with the father going out to the son and saying, listen, I know you're angry, but don't you know I love you? come home, come on back in, celebrate with us. And Jesus is saying, you're the older brother, scribe, Pharisee, you're the one. God loves you and you don't get it. The heart of God is for those who are lost. He wants them home and he wants you home too. And that message infuriated them. Because what could be worse for them than to realize that all their hard work all their righteousness didn't make them one bit more loved than the most worthless sinner who just turned around. They wanted it to count for something. They wanted to be able to say, I've done this. But they couldn't. And that's why they wanted him dead. And the thing you need to remember this week, you know, it's Palm Sunday. Jesus riding into the Jerusalem on that donkey, weeping, weeping over the fate of Jerusalem. And knowing in his heart, I'm walking into a trap. They've been scheming against me all this time, and this is the week they get me. And isn't it amazing? He didn't run away, he didn't defend himself, he didn't try to escape. He said, This is what I came to do. The miracle of our lives is that on Good Friday, he knew what was coming and he went, he went to the cross. Because that's how we can be redeemed. Because the love of God says, I cannot let them die. The wrath of God says, I cannot excuse sin. But the love of God says, I cannot let them pay. So Jesus paid for us. Now let me ask you something. A God who would become human and tell that kind of story and then die that kind of death for you, is that really the kind of God who wants to destroy you? No, it's not. Yes, hell is real. And yes, some people will go there, but over his dead body. His heart is for your salvation, your redemption. He wants you to come home.